Hi, I'm Dr. Barbara Byers and welcome back. I am going to be talking about grief today. The loss, the longing, and the sense of um, love that we feel in grief. So we won't grieve if we haven't lost. We have lost something we've loved, a person, a pet, a dream maybe, a job, a home, a relationship, and then that sense of loss evokes our grief. So to invest in something, to invest our love is to be vulnerable and it is to risk loss. And then afterwards, we may feel like our love has no place to go. But our attachment to that person or thing just simply indicates there was a uniqueness to us. There was a irreplaceability. And so now we've been deprived of something meaningful to us. And our, our grief then over that can be so full of all kinds of emotions. We may scream, we may cry, we may just sit and feel sad. Um, we may feel very angry. We may feel anxious. We can get physically sick. We can get oversensitive to things like uh, noises. We can be feel very fatigued and we can feel just so low and so lonely or so numb and shocked and um, unable, it seems, to move forward at first. And um, we can also get pretty preoccupied. And at first we wanna withdraw from others and we may have difficulty concentrating, even get obsessed about something. Or, uh, as is common, we try to avoid our grief. We all want to avoid pain, which is not possible because avoidance really robs us of life and the process that we need. So, uh, we have loss and we have longing for what we lost, but then we can also feel very uh, lost and alone ourselves, like we're just wandering in a desert landscape uh, with nowhere to go. Job expressed the anguish and the heaviness of grief when he said in Job 6, 2, and 3, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales. There can be such misery in our heartaches. And then the next chapter, he talks about just tossing and turning all night, and he calls it anguish of spirit. But he let his grief take him into hopelessness. And he says uh, this, my days come to an end without hope. But of course, if you read forward about 20 chapters, you see his days didn't come to an end without hope. And he had two extremely valuable things at the end of all of his grief. One is he really met the Lord in a new way. I had heard about you, but now I've seen you and I know you. And the second thing is that God restored all of the losses. And so one thing we have to then guard in our mourning, uh, which is really the process of adapting to our loss, is that we don't end up hopeless and in self-pity. We can really wrap ourselves in self-pity it causes us to, you know, collect our wounds and um, descend into ourselves. But real grief does acknowledge the pain and the feelings, but it continues to focus on and trust the Lord with our grief. And First Thessalonians four thirteen says, "We don't grieve as the world grieves. The world grieves without hope." 
but we grieve with great hope. So we have this choice. Am I going to, you know, feel entitled? I shouldn't have this pain and suffering. This hurt shouldn't be happening to me. Or am I going to surrender? And surrender is the key. Uh, all I feel, I bring to the Lord offering it into the hands of the one who's faithful. And if we just keep avoiding, it actually brings another kind of suffering. Sometimes we want to bargain with God or we want to set the limits for how long we suffer. But we need to realize that pain is something we have to come to terms with and live it with dignity and grace and not just muddle through it. On this side of our suffering, of our loss, we're not probably going to understand it. And that's where we have a choice to trust God's goodness. And that's where we often stumble trying to, you know, keep understanding and making sense of it. And it's not wrong to ask God why. God gives us plenty of room to ask our questions and to feel our feelings. But to demand the why is a whole different thing. We may not like <clears throat> where we are and what we're in, but we can trust his heart and he promises us peace, even joy and strength in Christ because he is our Emmanuel. He is God with us always. So <clears throat> when we experience loss, we're sad, but there's often a, a, like a deep, hot anger there as well. And one reason is anger can feel so powerful. You know, I losses is like I've lost control of what's going on and anger helps me sort of feel I have some control here. I'm not out of control. I'm not that vulnerable. So sometimes we need to look at our anger and see if there's some loss underneath it that needs to be processed. So in terms of grieving style, some people are more intuitive. They are more evocative. They're more uh, intense and expressive emotionally of their grief, and other people are more instrumental in their grieving style. So they're more thinkers. You see it in their thought and in their behavior. They're more modulated in their feeling. But most of us are a blend of that. But however our grief comes, God meets us in every different way of expression. And so grieving is really a process being with the Lord and continuing to let go. And it's his wonderful, awful process of guiding us into health, of keeping us healthy. It's a gift to keep us healthy and growing, and it has forward movement to it. You know, we don't really cope, but we learn to adapt and change and bring our grief into our meaning-making system. So appropriate grief actually heals, cleanses the old, and prepares us to be ready to receive new things in our life. We accept the loss uh, gradually and face the future. <clears throat> so um, when grief comes, it doesn't make appointments. Uh, it just comes and disrupts our business as usual. And control may seem lost, like, oh man, this is a train I want to get off. I find that grief often comes in waves when we least expect it. And it's helpful not to resist it, but let the wave come over and wash us and let it in so that we can let it out. This isn't something we can rush, but we can delay it if we won't let grief in. 
Sometimes we see grief as our enemy, but really it's our instructor. It's not there to protect us from all pain and suffering. It's there to bring us meaning. So we don't get over, we don't move on. What we do is learn to incorporate our suffering and our grief and stand in the cross, offering it to the Lord. And then it becomes meaningful. Then it becomes part of our story. So I like what Annie Lamont wrote in Traveling Mercies. Grief ends up giving you the two best things, softness and illumination. So she said it tenderizes you and it brings you light. In I Guess I Haven't Learned That Yet by Shauna Nequa, she wrote about these two things. Look for the good, even in the dark, especially in the dark. Once you train your eyes for tiny glimpses of goodness, you'll get better at seeing them. And you'll see more and more and more. And they'll keep you company and keep your heart tender as you long for the daylight. Choosing to see the good right in the middle of the darkness and loss is a discipline and a life-changing one. William Warden wrote of four tasks in grief. Not stages, but tasks or movements. First, he said, normal has just shifted and we don't wanna let go, but gradually we begin to understand and accept the reality of the loss. Second task is we need to experience and acknowledge the pain of that loss. We begin to process it and grief has its own timetable. And so we need to honor our grief. We can grieve intentionally. We need to grieve intentionally. We can take time to write in our journal. We can actually have a time where we say, this evening at 7.30, I'm gonna sit down with my grief. We can also look back over our life and do a timetable of our losses that's often helpful because we see sometimes where we have unprocessed griefs. So if we aren't intentional, then we're going to allow the hurt sometimes unintentionally to take center stage. And without realizing it, then we construct walls to keep ourselves protected, but really we keep the pain in, and then we have these numb, empty places that we try to fill with other things. The third thing, the third task is, we adjust to our new environment without the lost one or the lost thing, where we've deeply invested emotionally and loved something, um, now we have to divest of that and put mental energy into a new idea or dream or person. Uh, we have to take it back. And the only way we can do that is to grieve what we've invested so we can move forward, so we can forge new things. We develop a resiliency. And often we don't want to do this. We don't want to look toward new things. We want the old back. Um, suffering tenderizes us and it purifies us and it uh, leaves plenty of room for our questions, but it enlarges us to know we're being kept by faithful God. So our very significant task is to construct meaning out of our suffering, meaning that's been challenged by that loss. But when we offer our loss to the, the Lord, it becomes a seed for new things. So I love Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's been a bestseller, I think, since 1950. Viktor Frankl was a Viennese um, psychotherapist. He was in the States lecturing 
when the Nazis began their march across Europe. He went back to Austria because his parents and brother and sister were there, but they got put in concentration camps. His sister escaped, but both parents died. His pregnant wife died, and Viktor Frankl went into four different concentration camps and somehow uh, survived freezing and beatings and lack of food and emerged. A few months later, he was lecturing again, and he said this, life is beautiful and life is meaningful. Wow, how is that possible? He was a Jew, but he read the Psalms every day, and I think he, I think he received great comfort and great meaning from that. But the way he framed it made all the difference. The fourth task is we have to reinvest in the reality of new life. So we're turning more away from the past and more toward the future. We remember, but we still live a full and meaningful life. So the pain of loss is part of our spiritual formation. It teaches us to lean on his promises. It teaches us his faithfulness. It teaches us <clears throat> that he enters our sorrows with, with us and it can transform us. So some practical things to do. Well, I mentioned one. We need to write in our journal and we need to do that regularly and we really pour out our heart to the Lord raw and unedited and offer it to the Lord the one who understands everything and nothing is off limits nothing's hidden from him anyway we may as well be honest another thing is we need to talk to our trusted people your support team counselor pastor friends uh, coaches and we need to tell people what does and doesn't help us. Sometimes we just need to stop them and say, I know that was your experience with pain, but it's not mine. Here's what I need. Uh, if we have lack of empathy and lack of support from others, it drives the grief further down. So we need to talk and we need to be with people. We also need to learn uh, to laugh as well as cry with others. We need to continue to give to others. Uh, we need to take good walks in nature. And um, sometimes it's just helpful to change our routine, redecorate our home a little, move something around. It's also helpful to do something that requires us to use our hands in a repetitive motion that we can focus on. Knit, work in clay, paint, um, build something. So those are just a few things that we can do. I hope this has helped you to think about grief in a new way and maybe turn back toward it if you need to still process some things. So blessings until next time and thanks for being here with me.